Was that wrong? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. How the hell is that Mike Florio's job? So what, the f*** did he know? It's the PFT PM podcast for a Wednesday this week, not Tuesday. We had some technical difficulties here in my West Virginia studio, but we do the Week 14 Awards. What's a day, right? Week 15 doesn't start till tomorrow. We can put a bow on Week 14 today. It was either that or don't do it at all. But MBS, I enjoy doing this so much. I said I can do it a day later, and I'm glad you're willing to do it a day later as well. Always happy to. There are never any technical difficulties in my Chicago studio. Just wait. There could there could be. You never know. There, there, they could happen during the next hour or so as we wrap up week 14 with our awards. And let's get right to it. There's nothing else to really talk about today that we know of. Who knows what will happen once we get started. Let's start with the player of the week for week 14. MDS, who do you have? Well, I'm going with a guy who had a big change this season, a change of teams. And that is 49ers wide receiver Emmanuel Sanders who I think may turn out to be one of the most significant players in the NFC playoff race. He certainly was on Sunday in one of the biggest games of this regular season. He had seven catches for 157 yards and a touchdown, also threw a touchdown pass. And I just think he was a great in-season trade. And uh, this year, I think we've seen two really interesting in-season trades both with NFC West contenders, the 49ers getting Sanders, the Seahawks adding Quandre Diggs. And I think that kind of makes the NFL playoff race a little more exciting when a playoff contender adds a player who makes an impact. And, and Emmanuel Sanders, I thought, made a huge impact. I think he's one of the most important players on that 49ers team. And uh, he's my choice for player of the week. And, you know, it's funny when you think about trades involving NFC West teams this year, Jalen Ramsey doesn't even get mentioned because he hasn't had that same kind of impact on the Rams that Diggs has had on the Seahawks and that Sanders has had on the 49ers. And I talked to Sanders after that win over the Saints. And, you know, one of the things that impresses me, and this is driven by the coach more than anything else, it's so hard for a receiver to join a team in the middle of a season and have an impact. But... Kyle Shanahan knew, number one, Emmanuel Sanders fits the offense. He's played in an offense almost identical to the Shanahan offense when Gary Kubiak was the head coach of the Broncos. Number two, Kyle Shanahan is very good at coming up with plays that will showcase the skills and abilities of a player and keep it simple for him so he's not overwhelmed by having to digest new teammates, new coaching staff, new environment, new everything. Just keep it simple and ease him in. And number three, Letting him throw the football, recognizing he has that skill set. He threw a touchdown pass last year, so he throws a touchdown pass this year. And that's the genius of Kyle Shanahan and why the San Francisco 49ers are as good as they are this year. They saw the guy they wanted. They got him. It seemed like a lot to give up for a guy whose contract expires after this season, but they've made the most of Emmanuel Sanders. And I think that they would not be 11-2 and without him, MDS. I think they would be 9-3 and or 8-4. and uh, or eight and five, rather nine and four or eight and five. If they didn't have Emmanuel Sanders, that's how big of an impact he's had. Yeah. And, you know, think back to 2013 when Emmanuel Sanders was a restricted free agent with the Steelers, the Patriots signed him to an offer sheet. The Steelers ended up matching. He stayed with the Steelers when he became an unrestricted free agent, went to the Broncos, then gets traded to the 49ers. The Patriots traded for Mohamed Sanu this year, who has not had as big of an impact And I can't help but wonder if Bill Belichick, who we know likes Emmanuel Sanders because he tried to get him once before, I wonder if Bill Belichick is wishing, boy, I wish the guy we had made the really aggressive play for was Emmanuel Sanders instead of Mohamed Sanu because the Patriots look like they could use a playmaker. The 49ers got their playmaker. And if I recall correctly, and there's a chance I don't, along the way to Denver, Emmanuel Sanders had some sort of a deal in place with the Chiefs. That was one of those, it's verbally agreed to, but it's not done until it's done, and it never got done, and Sanders and his agent caught some flack at the time for that, but here we are, Sanders now, a member of the 49ers, and the 49ers rocketing toward the Super Bowl, potentially, possibly. They still have some tough games that they're going to have to get through in the NFC to get to Super Bowl 54. All right, my player of the week, a guy who's probably not going to play in a playoff game, but a guy who pulled off... And I'm surprised you didn't make him your player of the week. You're the guy that came up with the double-triple, and you don't go Austin Eckler for your player of the week? 
the double triple the new stat that's taking the nfl by storm and i don't say that sarcastically i think it's great chris sims loves it we talk about it all the time the idea of a player who has 100 or more yards in any two categories and it can be any two and the big story this year has been lamar jackson and his various double triples with 100 yards or more passing and 100 yards or more rushing here's austin eckler with 101 yards rushing and 112 yards receiving fueled by the 84 yard catch and run that he had that prompted the epic Philip Rivers, Yannick Ngakwe trash talk session that for whatever reason the Chargers thought made sense to put on their social media page because it does not make Rivers look good. It's very entertaining, but it makes Rivers kind of look like a butthole. Uh, and he's always been that kind of way with that kind of edge, but this isn't about him. The player of the week is Austin Eckler, a guy who has filled in capably when Melvin Gordon was out and who continues to do good things. He's got 481 rushing yards, 830 receiving yards so far this season, and that was his first 100-yard rushing game in the 45-10 blowout over the Jaguars. And by virtue of the double-triple and the big win by the Chargers over the Jaguars, and in light of the fact that we probably won't talk about the Chargers at any point for the rest of the year, Austin Eckler, Player of the Week. Yeah, well, I appreciate you mentioning the double-triple. Uh, one of the most consistent things I've heard when I've talked about this stat, the double-triple, is people say things to me like, oh, Marshall Falk must have had a lot of those 100 rushing, 100 receiving. Marshall Falk never did it. Uh, people have thought Roger Craig must have done it. Roger Craig never did it. It is really rare to get 100 yards rushing and 100 yards receiving in the same game. Uh, it, the, Austin Eckler is the first one to do it this season. Christian McCaffrey did it once. That was the only one last season. So it's a rare thing. And uh, yeah, Austin Eckler certainly deserves a lot of credit for doing it on Sunday. And what's amazing to me is that the all-time record is eight. Mike Vick has it. Lamar Jackson has five. And then there's a cluster of guys who have four. And Josh Allen had two last year in his rookie season with the Bills. Two straight games, he rushed for 100 yards or more. And one game, he had 99 yards. So he could have three. And then another game, he was in the 90s. He could have four. He hasn't had anything close to 100 yards rushing so far this year. The Bills are keeping him under wraps in that regard. But I think Lamar Jackson is going to sail by Mike Vick, but whenever it's time to put up the full list of all the guys who have done it, Austin Eckler now on the list. The Chargers get a win and they make Sunday's game against the Vikings very interesting. I know that game was flexed out of primetime and for good reason. The game that was moved to primetime, Bills Steelers, much more compelling for both teams. But the Vikings may have their hands full with the Chargers because one thing you noticed, I think you wrote the story this week, how the Chargers either blow people out or lose close games, but they are not a bad team this year. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, we saw the Chargers really take it to the Packers. And so the Vikings are absolutely going to have their hands full. And uh, the, the Chargers, they're not going to the playoffs, but they may, in a weird way, have a pretty big impact on that NFC North race because we've already seen what they did to the Packers. And now the Vikings need to be ready for a team that plays everybody close except the teams they blow up. Um, all right, let's move on then to the rookie of the week, week 14, handing out the awards a day late, but better late than never, especially when you don't get anything with it. So it's not like the trophy showed up a day late. Nothing showed up a day late, just the satisfaction. Who's your rookie of the week? I'm going with Darius Slayton of the Giants, even though it ended up in a losing effort. I uh, had five catches for 154 yards, two touchdowns. Uh, unfortunately, nothing after halftime, which I think uh, really calls into question um, what was going on with the Giants in the second half? Because they they really fell apart in a game that they came out looking so good. But but I want to put a, a little bit of focus on the positives we're seeing from Darius Slayton because I don't see a lot to like on this Giants team. You know, sometimes you look at a team that has only won a couple of games, but you say, boy, you know, they you can see how they're trending in the right direction. I'm not so sure I do see that about the Giants top to bottom on that roster. I actually don't see a lot of great talent on this roster, but I do like what Darius Slayton is doing. He's leading the Giants with 659 receiving yards this season. Uh, he, he has that big play capability. Eli Manning got him the ball deep a couple of times. Daniel Jones has not, I don't think, done a great job of getting him the ball deep. Uh, but, but when Darius Slayton is getting his opportunities, he's making the most of them. And I think he is at least one guy you can point to if you want to be optimistic about the Giants and say, hey, he's a player who is showing some promise. 
Yeah, you know, the Eagles responded very well to what the Giants had done in the first half on Sunday night, taking away those deep balls in the third and fourth quarter as the Eagles worked their way back. And also, the Eagles had the ball for so long, it's not like the Giants had a lot of opportunities to get the ball down the field to Darius Slayton. But Slayton had a huge first half. And yes, as as a Giants team that doesn't have a whole lot of positive things to look at, they kind of have this mini pack of triplets now in... Uh, Saquon Barkley, Daniel Jones, and Darius Slayton, you can build around that. The key is going to be offensive and defensive lines. If they can get that in place, it's not like it's easy to do, but if they can address those areas of the team, they've got the skill position players to really open things up, and Slayton has given them reason to be optimistic depending upon what moves they make in the offseason, both as to players and as to coach and or a new GM. My rookie of the week is Buzz Lightyear. Drew Locke, I've never seen a Buzz Lightyear celebration. I didn't know what it was at first, but the second-round pick for the Denver Broncos in his second start. You know, Archie Manning told him last week after he won his first game ever beating the Chargers, you can't win them all if you don't win the first one. And I told him when I talked to him after the game, hey, you can't win them all if you don't win the first two. And somehow they blew the Texans off the field. He told me that he knew from the first throw that he made, the first play from scrimmage, completed a pass to Noah Fant that went for 44 yards or thereabouts, that it was going to be their day. They were going to roll. And you can just tell he's got – and remember earlier this year when Mitchell Trubisky went back and watched TV copy of his demeanor during games because, I get you know, he was miserable and he had no confidence – Drew Locke is loose and he's having fun and he's jumping around and he has that that quality that is going to spill over to his teammates. And it's a rare quality. That's not to say he's going to be a great leader, but so far he seems like a guy who has the potential to play quarterback in a way that elevates the skills of the guys around him. And after all these swings and misses that John Elway has had at the quarterback position, he could be. He's finally found a keeper in Drew Locke, a guy who could save John Elway's job in time and actually is in the process of saving the season for the Broncos if there's a hope to avoid having their third straight sub-500 campaign for the first time since 1970 through 1972. They'd have to win their last three games to do it. But based on how they looked against the Texans, maybe they could, MDS. Yeah, I, I think the biggest question facing the Broncos right now is, will we finally know going into next season that we have our starting quarterback in place and we don't have any questions about him? And I think if Drew Locke can play over the final three games like he has in the first two, the Broncos are finally going to feel like we have our starting quarterback. Now, five games doesn't prove he's a great quarterback, but five games at least can give you enough that you don't think drafting a quarterback or signing a quarterback is one of our top offseason priorities. And if they have Drew Locke in place, then I think they're a team that can start to feel pretty good about, hey, Vic Fangio's building a pretty good defense here. Drew Locke is in place with a quarterback. We're not that far away from building a winner. Uh, like we said a moment ago, the Giants are an example of a team that we still feel like there's a lot that needs to be done to turn them into a winner. The Broncos, not so much. I think if Drew Locke shows that he's the quarterback, I could see the Broncos being a playoff team next year. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. I mean, going into 2020, I, I think I'm going to, to rank the AFC West teams as Chiefs, Broncos, and then to be determined Raiders, Chargers based upon offseason moves. And Chargers and Raiders are going to end up with new quarterbacks, I think. And I know that saying that Derek Carr is going to be out in Oakland isn't, or Las Vegas is an unpopular take. He's definitely going to be out in Oakland. Whether he'll be out in Las Vegas is the real issue. Some fans don't like it, but some Raiders fans, based upon the recent losses, are coming around to the idea that it is time to get a different quarterback. So the two teams with settled quarterbacks going into 2020 are going to be the Chiefs and the Broncos, most likely in the AFC West. All right, let's move on to Coach of the Week, MDS. Who do you have? Well, I'm going to go with Sean McVay, and I kind of decided this at halftime of the Sunday night game. It was 21-3, to the Rams were up, and I was kind of thinking, we're finally seeing this look like a Sean McVay offense. The Rams were really moving the ball effectively. It seemed like they were getting their playmakers involved. It seemed like Jared Goff was in command of the offense. Todd Gurley was running well, and it just seemed like this is what we haven't seen enough this season, the Sean McVay offense looking the way a Sean McVay offense is supposed to look, looking the way it looked last year when we all were talking about Sean McVay as the next best, the next big thing in coaching. So I, I give Sean McVay credit for how well they played early on, 
Second half was a little slower, but then again, they were playing with a big lead. They didn't need to pull out all the stops in the second half. I thought that that game plan against the Seahawks looked very, very good. I think it may be too little too late for the Rams. If you look at the way the NFC is shaping up, it's still going to be tough for the Rams to get back into the playoff race. But I do think you have to give Sean McVay credit. thought the Rams offense looked very good on Sunday night. Yeah, and look, even though the the elephant in the room for the Rams is Todd Gurley's knee, and I feel like Sean McVay won't talk about it, the players won't talk about it, the reporters won't ask questions about it, I think the reality is that the Rams deliberately withheld Todd Gurley throughout the course of the season, planning to unleash him later in the year when there's less of a concern about chronic wear and tear keeping him from playing like it did late in the 27 or the 2018 season, excuse me. And, and yeah, they dance around it, but I think that's the reality. And now that they are in a position where their season's on the line each and every week, they're going all in with Todd Gurley and it's working and it will work until it doesn't looming over all of this is the possibility that Todd Gurley's knee is going to get aggravated, that he's not going to be able to play or play at the same level, but this is how they plan to go into this season. I firmly believe it from the get-go. They were not going to overuse him early. They were going to save him for the right moment. They were going to know when the right moment is, and the right moment came, and off they go with Todd Gurley. So I credit Sean McVay for making chicken salad out of a bad situation, and we'll see if it's enough to get them to the playoffs. Right now it's not, but who knows what will happen over the next few weeks. My coach of the week is the Chiefs defensive coordinator, Steve Spagnolo, who put together a game plan, and this is something Chris Sims noticed when he looked at the film. Early on against the Patriots, the Chiefs did to the Patriots a lot of what the Patriots did to the Chiefs in the AFC Championship game where you have one safety deep who's actually double-teaming one of the receivers. They did a lot of doubling of Julian Edelman and James White coming out of the backfield. You know, And, and this was, I think, an example of psychological warfare as it relates to coaching because we saw how upset Tom Brady was with his young receivers during the Texans game. So what do you do? you force him to throw to the young receivers that he's not comfortable with. You make him do the thing that is uncomfortable. That's been the classic approach for Bill Belichick defenses for years, and it was the smart way to go. Blanket Edelman, blanket White, force him to throw to Jacoby Myers, Nikhil Harry, the guys he'd rather not trust because he's not sure he can trust them, and he's not sure that they're as good as they need to be. And that all added up, coupled with what the Chiefs were able to do on offense, which was just enough, it added up to a win that the Chiefs needed desperately to stay in the mix for a bye, and also it knocks the Patriots down even farther to the point where they may have to worry about not having a bye for the first time since 2010. So Spagnolo, who who started the year with a defense that was a little a little uh, suspect to say the least, and as bad if not worse than last year's defense, they've come on. I think they they grew during the period of time that Patrick Mahomes was out. They become more aggressive when they need to be, and they had a great game plan for slowing down the Patriots, beating the Patriots, and now they're in great position to still have a shot at being one of the two teams that has a bye in the AFC if they can gain one more game on the Patriots over the final three weeks. Yeah, and I think sometimes there's a lot of focus on the Patriots so that when their offense doesn't play well, we immediately say, well, is Tom Brady finally getting old? Has Bill Belichick not done a good enough job of putting playmakers around Tom Brady? What's wrong with the Patriots' offense? And I think we also have to acknowledge that the Chiefs' defense deserves a lot of credit for the Patriots' offense not looking very good. If, if Tom Brady is made to look old and the, the Patriots' playmakers are made to look like they can't make plays, the other team's defense has something to do with that. And I agree. I thought the Chiefs really came in with a good game plan against the Patriots, and I thought the Chiefs' defense showed that it's a, it's a playoff defense. And, and even if the Chiefs' offense isn't quite at the level it was last year, I think the Chiefs feel, might feel more confident this January that they can win without their offense having to do it all than they did a year ago. So I, I think the Chiefs, maybe we've overlooked a little bit. We've focused so much on the Ravens and the Patriots as the top two in the AFC. I don't think we should overlook the Chiefs either. Yeah, and the Chiefs, I think, are capable of making things interesting in the playoffs. They have a dangerous quarterback. If the defense plays better, they can get there. And, you know, they, they beat Lamar Jackson last year. They beat Lamar Jackson this year, although uh, I feel like no one's going to beat Lamar Jackson any at any point over the rest of the season. But we'll see if it plays out that way. All right, last award for the week, 
call of the week. It can be any call. It can be a coach's decision, a player's decision, uh, a, an official's decision, our Riveron's decision, anyone's decision. MDS, what's your decision on the most significant decision of the week? Well, these are really two calls of the week, and they are they are not good calls. They were bad calls that went against the Patriots and probably cost them two touchdowns. Uh, there was a fumble that was originally ruled down. Patriots recovered, and it looked like they were going to run it back for a touchdown. I suppose you could say someone might have made the tackle for the Chiefs' offense, but it looked like the Patriots were about to get a defensive score until it was blown dead. And what was really interesting was Bill Belichick had to use his last challenge just to get the fumble overturned. You can't overturn the return because once they've blown it dead, there can be no return. So all the Patriots got was the ball at the spot and not the return, which looked like it was going for a touchdown. Then, because the Patriots had used their last challenge to get that one, the next series, the, the offensive series, the Patriots had Nikhil Harry score a touchdown. He just barely managed to keep his foot inbounds before diving for the pylon. Replays were clear that he had scored, but the officials ruled that he had stepped out of bounds. They didn't have a challenge because they had used it on that previous play. That cost them another touchdown. So the Patriots had every reason to be extremely upset. They were effectively robbed of two touchdowns in a close game. And uh, that that one, I thought, really epitomized what we've been talking about so much this season, where we, we just see these, these instant bang-bang plays where an official makes a call in an instant, and even though we have instant replay, sometimes instant replay can't fix it. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, there, there's not much you can do other than swallow the whistle in a situation where there's a fumble that is ruled not a fumble. And and I don't know what would have happened with Stephon Gilmore on that play. I mean, it looks like he was going to score, but Tyree Kill was closing in and Patrick Mahomes was lurking around. But on the on the Nikhil Harry thing, I, and, and I've argued this from the moment they made scoring plays automatically subject to replay review. I, I said, well, why, why isn't a play that would have been a scoring play if they had gotten the call right? Why isn't that also subject to automatic replay review? It doesn't make sense to exclude that because it's every bit as significant. It's just the mistake happened differently. On a scoring play, the mistake possibly is they thought the guy caught the ball when, in fact, he dropped it. On the non-scoring play, the mistake is they thought he didn't catch the ball when he actually did. It's still a touchdown if it ends up being a catch. So I don't like the fact that they don't make it automatic, and it should have been automatic, and Bill Belichick shouldn't have had to use a, a challenge flag there and he didn't have a challenge flag there to use because he had to use it to overturn the damn uh, screw up they had made on the on the fumble in the prior uh, situation. All right, my call of the week and there's a bunch of different ones. Oh, let me say one other thing before we get to that because I want your take on this. We got the news yesterday that the NFL is going to engage in a top-down review of the officiating function in the offseason. It sounds like it's going to be comprehensive and it could involve someone new actually doing the replay review at 345 Park Avenue. It could result in other things that pulls the NFL's officiating function into the 21st century. You know, they're still using two sticks and 10 yards of chain length to determine whether or not someone gets a first down. But I, I was troubled by the fact, even though we're in the information business, I don't like the fact that they leaked this now. Because what difference does it make now? What is it going to do now to make anyone feel better about any of these bad calls? And what it's going to do is just put extra pressure on everyone in the officiating department, starting with Al Riveron, because they are now working for their jobs, especially Riveron. And I don't know that extra pressure is going to make things better down the stretch either, MDS. Yeah, and it was an NFL media report that initially said that. So certainly uh, it's the call was coming from inside the house on that one. And uh, it really does put a lot of pressure on Al Riveron, who... You know, look, he's gotten a lot of criticism. Plenty of it is deserved. But at the same time, I don't think the league has put him in a very good position to do his job very effectively. And this story coming out yesterday is another example of that, that it's tough to do your job well when your own company is putting out the word that you're on notice and you may be getting fired very soon. 
Yes, and uh, I, there's nothing to be gained at all. And you're right. The call came from inside the House. They leaked it to their own people, and they do that. You know, every time there's a league meeting, there's some sort of report from Judy Batista of NFL Network right beforehand. So there's somebody who is deliberately choosing to give her something that can be used to enhance the coverage of the meeting, whatever the case may be. That's fine. Hey, if you're going to be a sports league that owns a media company, you got to be sensitive to that. I just don't know if this is the right thing to hand to anyone because ultimately it's not good for the NFL for this to be out. Wait until the season's over. Address it then. Otherwise, just keep your head down and keep moving forward. Unless they think that that shot across the bow is going to help keep the ship moving toward the right direction over the final three weeks of the regular season and into the playoffs. All right, my call of the week, and even though the Steelers won the game, and uh, even, you know, even though it didn't ultimately cause a disaster, the decision to call a fake punt and then call it off unsuccessfully, well, successfully as to 10 of the players, unsuccessfully as to the punter. I've never seen anything like it. It was ridiculous. It was stupid. It was Keystone Cops. The way that guy got gobbled up because the other 10 guys had gone down the field. There was no one there to try to block for the punter. And the fact that you would even put the fake on, don't don't play with fire in that situation. What the hell are you doing thinking about putting a fake punt in? You're up 10, and you're deep in your own end in the fourth quarter, and you've got one of the best defenses in the NFL. Punt the damn ball. So, you know, sorry, Mike Tomlin. I think you're a Coach of the Year candidate, and if I had a vote, I may vote for Mike Tomlin, but not based on what we saw on Sunday. That was a stupid, stupid maneuver, and it shows what happens. It's not like Madden where you can quickly call an audible – you know, there's a chance that one of those 11 guys isn't going to get the message when you press the button to change the play, and that's what happened to the Steelers, and it could have cost them dearly. And if they had lost the game after that, Mike Tomlin, in my mind, would have been disqualified. And I know Steelers fans that wanted to be fi- still wanted to be fired for that play, even though they won the game. I mean, it's amazing. He's had the best coaching job, I think, of his career this season. He has turned chicken crap into chicken salad. He's 8-2 and two after starting 0-3, and, and there are Steelers fans that just want him to go. It's amazing to me that that attitude is still out there when you consider what he's done with so little. Yeah, they've done a phenomenal job. I mean, they have an undrafted rookie as their starting quarterback right now, and they look like they're going to make the playoffs as a wild card. Uh, I, I think he's done a great job, but you're right that that call the the fake punt doesn't make any sense. The it didn't make sense in that game situation, and then also you just have to have a better means of communicating than you're than just hoping that your punter hears what the guys 15 yards in front of him are saying when they call it off. It's particularly important on special teams, offense, and defense. You have one player with a green dot on his helmet who's hearing from the coaches uh, on special teams, you don't have that guy. So everything has to be communicated on the field. And it, it just doesn't make any sense to me that that play happened. It's a weird mistake from a team that has been very well coached this year. Yeah. And uh, we'll see if they can be well coached enough to beat a bills team that like many of the teams the Steelers have played this year, the bills are better, but the Steelers could find a way to knock them off and win the game. All right, before we answer a few questions to wrap this week 14 edition of a Wednesday PFT PM, I need to remind you of something with the holidays approaching that uh, there are real risks in driving drunk. You can get in a crash. People get hurt. People get killed. Consider the statistics. Almost 29 people in the United States die every day in alcohol-impaired vehicle crashes. 29 people a day, even with everything we know now about the risks of drunk driving there are still 29 a day that's one every 50 minutes and drunk driving fatalities have fallen by a third over the last three decades but still 10,000 lives per year are lost due to drunk driving and uh, keep in mind driving while under the influence of marijuana or other street drugs is also illegal and also can be deadly so whether it's marijuana whether it's anything else whether it's alcohol as the holidays approach be very conscious. Be very careful. There are plenty of easy ride-sharing apps out there, Uber, Lynx, cabs. There are still cabs around. Every once in a while, you see a cab somewhere. There are ways to get home from wherever you are, holiday parties, office parties, whatever the case may be. Be smart. Be safe. Don't get behind the wheel. Don't become a statistic. Don't make someone else a statistic either. You want to make yourself a statistic, that's fine. But don't make someone else a statistic either. And uh, uh, bottom line is drive sober, get pulled over. And uh, that's brought to you by our friends at 
NHTSA. All right, let's get to the questions that we have this week. I have to navigate here a little bit on my email to get to the list of the uh, questions that were submitted yesterday when we were going to do the PFTPM podcast that day. But obviously, as mentioned previously, we had to bump it back a day due to technical difficulties. More than technical difficulties in Dallas with the coaching situation. Jason Garrett likely to be out. PFTPM Posse, who also, the guy who runs that account is a Cowboys fan. Should Urban Meyer be a candidate for any NFL head coaching job, considering he left his last two college jobs for stress-related health issues, especially as it's fairly common knowledge that NFL head coaches have significantly more stretch, stress excuse me, than NCAA head coaches. And again, that's coming up because Urban Meyer has been mentioned as a candidate for the Cowboys coaching job. But Jerry Jones said Tuesday that he hasn't met with Urban Meyer. He didn't say he hasn't talked to him, said he hasn't met with him. He hasn't been ruled out. Nobody's been ruled out by the Cowboys yet. But, you know, I thought that was weird, MDS. The moment Urban Meyer mused to Colin Coward about coaching the Cowboys, the fact that he walked away from two college jobs under circumstances that seemed to be a result of stress and most recently an arachnoid cyst in his brain that uh, causes migraines under stress, you would think he would not want to coach another high-profile team and of any NFL team, there's no team with a higher profile that's going to create more stress than the Dallas Cowboys, especially because you have to deal with Jerry Jones all the time. Yeah, it, it would have to be a major concern for any team that was considering Urban Meyer that, that would be, how long can we count on you to be there before you say, the stress is affecting my health, so I have to leave, which is what he has said twice now at his last two college jobs. I will say, however, this guy's a phenomenally successful coach. Everyone knows what he did at Ohio State. Everyone knows what he did at Florida. I think people often overlook what a tremendous job he did at Utah, which was never a football power until Urban Meyer showed up. He then set the groundwork for, for Utah is still a very good football school, and that started with Urban Meyer, who led them to an undefeated season. Even before that, head coach at Bowling Green he had a great record as well. So he's won everywhere he has been. Um, I think he he should be considered if he can say definitively that he is up to the task. But absolutely, that would be a concern. And, you know, the other the only other thing I would say about all this is there's no way Jerry Jones isn't already making his plans for who he wants his next head coach to be who he has actually talked to versus who he's maybe only made overtures to through an intermediary. I don't know, but look, Jerry Jones is quite clearly ready to move on from Jason Garrett. And there's just no way Jerry Jones isn't already in the process of trying to figure out who that next head coach will be. So although if Jason Garrett is fired, he will certainly say, Oh, I'm going to have a coaching search. Jerry Jones already knows who his first choice is. I, I can say that pretty confidently. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I think his first choice is Sean Payton. Not to get off the Urban Meyer topic, but I think it's Sean Payton. And I think the Sean Payton extension that was reported earlier this year, I don't think, I just kind of, it, it wouldn't surprise me if that was part of a broader effort to throw everyone off the trail to not have every story about Jason Garrett's future include a paragraph about Sean Payton being expected to be a candidate to be the coach of the Cowboys next year. That reduces the distraction for Garrett, reduces the distraction for Payton and the Saints. And even if there isn't a real extension, or even it's, if it's an extension that Payton can get out of easily, just because a guy has a contract extension doesn't mean that he can't get out of it. And it could be that the Saints and Payton realized it's in our best interests mutually to create the impression that you're bound to this team for the next X number of years so there isn't constant talk. And the, as Payton coined the phrase several years ago, Sunday splash report about what Peyton's future is going to be. His name hasn't come up other than through our speculation at PFT and right here. And we talked about it on PFT live that maybe that's who Jerry's going to want. But I think people are starting to catch on to the idea that that may be who Jerry wants. The question is what kind of a commitment has been made by Peyton to the saints and would he be available? Last thing on urban Meyer, there is a chance. And I'm reminded of Jerry's quote from last week to one Oh five, three, the fan in Dallas, when he said, do you understand bullshit? 
It could be that all this stuff about Urban Meyer's health issues is bullshit. It could be, right? It could be that that's just his way of gracefully exiting. It's not that I'm being pushed. It's not that whatever the case may be, I've got a health reason for stepping away from this job. And, uh, and maybe he'll have a health reason for stepping away from the Cowboys job if he gets it. So it's quite possible that these health issues are being overblown to suit his needs. And it wouldn't be the first time that's ever happened. Uh, and I think that that's possible. I don't think you'd be thinking about coaching the Cowboys if you have true concerns that it's going to be adverse to your health, MDS. To find a way for us to move on from Urban Meyer when that happened without it looking like a major scandal. And if you either fire him or he resigns without a good story of why he's resigning, it looks like a major scandal. But if he announces, well, I'm stepping away because of my health, that puts a better spin on it. So I, I, I particularly think with his departure from Ohio State, it may not have been as much about health as they wanted us to think it was. Yeah, I agree with you completely. And the fact that he's even in the mix for this Cowboys job, that he talked openly about taking it. And, and some people have quibbled with me about the words that he used. Bottom line is he wants that job. And uh, I don't know that he's the right guy for the Cowboys, but if he does take that job, I think that provides even more proof that, that health isn't the impediment that maybe they want us to think it is. All right, next question from Tyler Furness. You've talked about the Sky Judge extensively, which I agree with, but could the NFL benefit from having every play eligible for a booth review just like the NCAA has? Uh, MDS, what do you think about that? My objection to every play eligible for a booth review is – I think it would delay games too much and there would be too much talk of why did this team get a, a, a play reviewed at this time in a game when this other team didn't get a play reviewed by the booth at this time in the game. If we're going to go down that route, I think the better approach is what Bill Belichick has proposed, which is, hey, just let coaches throw their challenge flag on whatever they want to. If if there's a hold and the coach is adamant that there was clear holding on that play and he wants to use one of his challenges for that, let him throw his red challenge flag to try to get holding or whatever the play is. So I think if we're going to make it every play eligible, I think it's better to do it with the coach's challenges, which naturally limit the number of replay delays we'll see rather than booth review where there is no limit and we might get into too much of boy there was maybe a holding on that play we better look at it again and then the games are stretching out to four hours my position has always been that the nfl should have automatic review of any play that would or wouldn't have resulted in scoring as we talked about earlier if it's a scoring play, it's automatically reviewable. If it would have been a scoring play but for a mistake by the officials, it should be reviewable. Turnovers or plays that would have been turnovers but for a mistake made by officials, that should be subject to replay review. And also, plays that resulted in a first down or if ruled properly on the field would have resulted in a first down, that should be automatically reviewable. I think that should be the case the entire game. That's the universe of circumstances where a review happens and each coach has one red flag per game. One time do they have a chance to throw a red flag and challenge something that doesn't fall into that automatic bucket. And obviously, final two minutes of either half, overtime, automatic review for anything and everything. But I, I think that that streamlines the process because most of the time that you see, like it's, it's goofy when you see uh, a coach throw the red flag for a play on second and 10 that if the pass is complete, it's going to be third and one versus third and 10. That doesn't happen very often. I mean, usually it's a play where there is a first down and or it's not a first down. And I think that would be a good way to streamline it. And you give coaches that one opportunity during the course of the game to challenge something that doesn't fall into those categories. I could get behind that because I don't like this whole chess match of holding back your challenge flags for, uh, you know, just in case they screw me in the fourth quarter. How do I budget my use of the red flags early on because I may get screwed later? I've never liked that, and I wish they didn't have that. All right, let's move on to a couple more before we wrap up. Uh, this comes from On Tour Forever. Jameis Winston is great in fantasy, but awful as a real NFL quarterback. Does Bruce Arians franchise tag him for a bridge year while they get another quarterback ready, or do they dump him outright? MDS, what do you think? 
I think a franchise tag is the most likely of the three options, which are let him walk, re-sign him to a long-term deal, or franchise him. I think that's the most likely, but it really says something about Jameis Winston that here he is, he has completed his five-year rookie contract as the first overall pick, and we still don't really know if the Bucks have found their franchise quarterback or not. It's kind of crazy. At least Marcus Mariota, by playing badly and then getting supplanted by Ryan Tannehill, at least he gave the Titans some certainty that, no, we're not going with Marcus Mariota as our franchise quarterback going forward. Jameis Winston is kind of unique in that he's a first overall pick who hasn't done well enough to make the team say adamantly, yes, this is our guy, but also hasn't done poorly enough that the team is ready to move on. I think a franchise tag makes the most sense when your quarterback is in that situation. And actually, MDS, there's one other category that I'm going to refresh your memory on, and I think you're going to agree with me when I tell you this. The transition tag actually makes even more sense because you preserve the ability to match in the event that someone comes in and makes some crazy offer for Jameis Winston, which they're not going to do. You can keep him for less than that 26 to $27 million that the franchise tag will be. It's going to be about $22 million. You're paying him $20.9 this year. The transition tag will be in that range of 22 to $23 million. So you save a few million. You have him for another year. It becomes fully guaranteed when he accepts it, and he would be wise to accept it uh, once he knows that no one is going to offer him a long-term contract that he wants to sign. So he has another year to try to work something out. I think that makes the most sense. Because, uh, and, and really, by now you know who a guy is. And it could just be that Jameis Winston is always going to be exactly who he is. Is there a chance uh, when he gets on the other side of 30, he starts ironing out the mistakes? I don't know. But I don't see him changing dramatically over who he currently is. And if that's good enough for the Buccaneers, fine. I mean, the problem is... You never know who else is out there and whether or not that option is going to be any better than the guy that you have. So I think for now, they at least try to find a way to keep him. But I think transition tag makes more sense than franchise tag. Uh, the thing that would make the most sense is some kind of a short-term contract that, that wouldn't even pay the franchise tag but, uh, or the transition tag amount. But uh, again, it's all going to be driven by whether or not his agent is getting feelers from other teams. And I'd be surprised if there's another team out there that really covets Jameis Winston. I, I, you know, Ryan Tannehill, I could see other teams wanting to give him a chance based upon how well he's played. I just don't – MDS, is there a team that you look at and say there's a team that's a candidate to try to get Jameis Winston? No, there's not. And uh, it, it, it would be really interesting to see. All it takes is one, of course, but he doesn't really strike me as the type of quarterback that a coach feels confident in because – Coaches are conservative in their nature. They want quarterbacks who are avoiding turnovers and managing the game. And Jameis Winston, although he makes a lot of great plays, still makes so many mistakes, so many interceptions where you say, what, what was he thinking when he threw that pass? And uh, it, it's tough to see a team really going after Jameis Winston with the kind of lucrative offer that a franchise quarterback would expect. All right, let's jam in a couple more here real quickly. This next one comes from On Tour Forever. How far do you think the Packers will make it in the playoff this year? I think they're one game and done. MDS, what do you think the Packers will do? Well, it, it, we still have to see what happens when the Packers and Vikings have their rematch, which may be the game that determines whether the Packers are playing at home or on the road to start in the playoffs. But I tend to agree with that. I don't see a long run from this Packers team. I, I don't really think they are as good as the the Saints, the 49ers, the Seahawks. I, I don't see this Packers team as one of the top teams in the NFC. I could very easily see them losing their first round playoff game. Uh, it looks like we could also see a situation where the Packers and Vikings play a third time in the first round of the playoffs. That could be very interesting as well. But but I, I would tend to agree with the question that I could easily see the Packers being one and done. 
as of right now, the Packers are the number two seed in the NFC. I think it's highly unlikely that they end up with a bye week in the postseason. They have the Bears coming to town this week, and the Bears much better than the Bears team that the Packers beat in week one. I think the Packers are vulnerable on Sunday. They've been vulnerable in most of their games recently. They've had ugly losses to the Chargers and to the 49ers. And then on top of that, they have not looked great against the Panthers. They haven't looked great against the Giants. They didn't look great against Washington. I think they're vulnerable to a loss this weekend, which would open the door for Minnesota to try to win the division in the event that the Vikings can beat the Chargers mm -hmm. on Sunday. But I actually think that the Vikings are a better team than the Packers this year. Now, Aaron Rodgers is a better quarterback than Kirk Cousins, but the rest of the positions across the board, I think the Vikings are the better team. And I think the Vikings actually are better suited to playing in Lambeau Field in January than the Packers are because the Vikings have that running game and they have that defense that I think would serve them well. And if it becomes a passing game in, in bad weather, th that's going to hurt the Packers more than it hurts the Vikings. So uh, I, I think the Vikings are capable of winning the division. They're going to need some help from the Bears. Uh, but I also think that if the Vikings and the Packers get together in the wild card round, the Vikings can win. And I don't see the Packers beating the likes of the 49ers, who we saw shred the Packers a few weeks back, or the Saints or the Seahawks with the season on the line in the postseason. So I don't see them making it past the divisional round if they make it that far. All right, a couple more real quickly. Uh, this one comes from Icemaster74. Is Jacoby Brissett the starting quarterback for the Colts next year? Yes, I think so, although I'm growing less confident of that the longer the season goes on. But I do think the Colts really seem to like Jacoby Brissett uh, I, I get the impression that Frank Wright, Chris Ballard, Jim Irsay all really think they've got their guy in Jacoby Brissett. So I do think he will remain their starter. Yeah, I do too. And they signed that contract that's intended to cover next year as well. So I, I think he is their guy. And, uh, you know, if Andrew Luck would want to come back, things would get complicated. I don't know that Andrew Luck would want to play for the Colts, though, if he does come back. And it could be the Colts just refuse to trade him or otherwise allow him to play for anyone else. But I just I have a feeling Brissett is going to be their guy into the future, and they're going to try to make the most out of that situation. All right, uh, one more here from Frank Chavawi. A team that's in the hunt that has the best chance of getting to the Super Bowl. Who's the first team you think of? The best chance among teams that are just in the hunt but not already in the playoffs? Well, I, let, let's make it teams other than – let's have a consensus of who the best teams are right now. Other than the Ravens, Patriots, Chiefs, 49ers, Saints, Seahawks, Packers. Other than those seven, what team do you think from the remaining bunch has the best chance of rising up? I'm going to go with the Titans. And since Ryan Tannehill became the starter in week seven, the Titans are six and one. The Ravens are seven and oh since week seven. Titans are the second best team in the NFL since week seven when Ryan Tannehill took over as the starter, I think we might all be overlooking them a little bit. I think that they're playing at a higher level than we're giving them credit for. Uh, they, they've got two very big games coming up in their final three against the Texans. That's going to decide who wins that AFC South division. I like the Titans. I, I think they're playing well right now. It would not shock me to see them pull a postseason upset. Well, and, you know, they have an opportunity to end up with uh... – a bye week, not just a division title. They play the Texans twice in the final three weeks. They have the Saints in between that. They run the table. If the Chiefs stumble and if the Patriots really stumble and lose two of their last three, there's a chance that the Titans can thread that needle and end up with a two seed in the uh, the AFC. So I, I agree with you. The Titans are one team to watch. And, you know, I, I, I'm – I've been outed as a Vikings fan in recent years. I was one growing up, and I'm far less passionate now. I mean, you, you know, you have nostalgia, especially this time of year as the playoffs arrive. You want, it, you want to kind of see the team that you rooted for as a kid one of these days, cash it in. But I think they're good enough to play with anybody in the NFC. And that game against the Seahawks, Daniel Hunter told me after the win over the Lions that that game against the Seahawks really gave them confidence that they can go on the road and they can win, even though they lost that game. And they're going to have to go at some point to San Francisco or Seattle or New Orleans, and they feel like they can do it. So I think they're one of those dark horse teams that in the NFC could be a real problem. They may be the sixth seed at 12-4 and four by the time it's all said and done. All right, last one, and then we're going to wrap it up. Uh, and it's an important question, especially at this time of year. This one comes from I don't know 40 A Christmas Story is hands down my favorite Christmas movie. What's yours? MDS, what's yours? 
Well, mine is also probably a Christmas story, but but if we have to name another one beyond a Christmas story, I'm going to go with the animated Grinch. Uh, not not the Jim Carrey one and not the even more recent one that I don't even know who voiced the Grinch. I think that was an animated one. But the old school one, Boris Karloff, uh, I, I just think that is a classic Christmas story. Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Yeah, and I, does that count as a movie, though? I, it was a half-hour show. Is that it, really a movie? May, maybe not. Maybe I'm cheating. Well, but you know it, what? Okay. For me... I'll, I'll, I'll pick a movie, Bad Santa. How about that? Well, that, that's good. Oh, oh, that's good. I wouldn't have even thought of Bad Santa because it's so bad, I can't think of it as a Christmas movie. It's like calling Die Hard a Christmas movie. Like, it's completely antithetical to everything that is about Christmas, although at its core, it does have a heart. And at the end of the day, there's a happy ending, even though Billy Bob Thornton gets shot, spoiler alert, eight times on the front lawn of Thurman Merman's house. Bad Santa is excellent. Bad Santa is one of my all-time favorite movies, regardless of season. But I will say this about the original Grinch. For me, back in the days where you couldn't watch whatever you want to watch whenever you want to watch it, and yes, kids, there was a time where you had to actually wait for something to come on. And you knew that Friday night at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central on CBS, it was going to be the annual showing of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And for me as a kid, that was the moment, man. That was the moment the Christmas started. That was like one of the centerpiece events other than Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. Watching the Grinch once a year because you didn't have you didn't have any way to tape it. You couldn't save. You couldn't. That was it. You had to tune in. And if you didn't tune in, you missed it. And you had to wait until next year to see it. The Grinch was the thing for me. That was one of the Christmas anchors. Uh, because I just kind of like the fact, you know, the Grinch was like the original anti-hero. We talk about Walter White and, and Tony Soprano and how the rise of the Sopranos created the foundation for these shows where they're kind of dark and you end up rooting for the bad guy. You rooted for the bad guy in The Grinch. He was the first true mainstream anti-hero and i loved it for that reason only because he was a bad guy who ultimately turns good at the very end after he after he completely destroys christmas and then somehow gets that sleigh back down the mountain i i every year that was that was the moment for me that christmas really began yeah and the it's such a an iconic christmas story that the word grinch has kind of supplanted the word scrooge from a much older iconic christmas story as kind of the the ultimate Christmas anti-hero, the ultimate person who isn't into the Christmas spirit uh, until he is redeemed at the end. Spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. If you see anyone out there who has yet to see The Grinch or is unfamiliar with the story, at the end, his heart becomes three sizes too big or it was too it was three sizes too small it grew five sizes that day so i guess that makes it two sizes too big all right that's it for this wednesday edition i want to say tuesday i'm used to doing this on tuesday we got it done week 14 awards in the can thanks everybody for checking us out on thursday it's going to be the pftpm joint mega picks podcast with chris sims updates around the clock at profootballtalk.com pft live tomorrow mds great job everybody have a great day we'll talk to you again on thursday